If you have a, a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to the book of James toward the end of the uh, New Testament because that's where we're uh, lodging for four weeks together these last four weeks of Sunday as Pastor Rob is on vacation. Um, James is doing one thing, just to kind of get the one idea picture. He's asking Christians uh, a test. He's giving them a test, and the test is this. It's as simple as this. Are you walking by faith? That's the test. Now, he's assuming something, and what he's assuming is you've already come to that place, that point action of time, when you have put your faith in Christ as your personal Savior. So you've passed from death unto life. Now he's saying the just shall live by faith. And what he's asking you and me is, are you walking by faith? Now he gives 15 individual tests. So you can read the book of James and go to each one and just let the Spirit of God uh, examine your heart and to see, am I walking by faith in this area of my life? Now, I've taken those 15 individual tests, and I've condensed them down into four areas because I have these uh, four Sundays uh, with you, and the four tests are on the screen on the next slide. And in chapter 1, which we saw last week, he asked you to examine yourself in relationship to yourself. And I have to look at my life, and he's going into three areas there in chapter 1. How do you respond to the test or trials of life? So when a trial hits you from the blind side, how do you respond to that? A trial is something you don't want, but God wants you to have it and to endure it because he's at work in your life, producing patience, bringing you to a spiritual maturity. Then he goes from the area of trials, and he goes, same Greek word, but opposite side of the coin, he goes to temptations. Now, temptations is something you want to do, but God doesn't want you to do. Got the difference? Trials, God says, I want you to go through this, but you don't want to. A temptation is you don't, you want to, but God says, I don't want you to go and fall to that temptation. So that's the difference. How do you respond? And then thirdly, and the key is, how do you respond to the truth of God? And so are you taking the truth of God, the scriptures, and correlating the truths of the scriptures into every area of your life? How do you do on the test regarding yourself? Now, in chapter 2, we come to another area, as you can see, and this has to do with the test of how you relate to others, to other people. And in particular, he's uh, asking us to examine our lives and how we view and treat other people, which then is a true indicator of what I really believe about God. So as I relate to others around me, that's going to reveal what I really think about God. John makes it plain over and over again. If a man says he loves his God, but rejects his brother, how dwelleth the love of God in him? And James is asking the same question. How do you respond uh, to other people? And so that's the main idea that we see in James chapter 2. Now let me take that just a step further and say I need to, uh, to go a little deeper here. And I need to ask myself this question. How do I relate to people whose color of skin is different than mine, who are of a different culture, who have a different class of living, 
who even have a different creed. How do I relate to people of color, culture, creed, or class? And these verses speak to us today on the subject of what you and I would call prejudice or partiality or showing respect to persons. Take it even a step further from that and take it to another big general area in this. How do I relate to people whose society has targeted as people who are insignificant? Insignificant. Now, who would that be? And you know, it's interesting how the, the Word of God threads thoughts together, and sometimes we don't see the thread, and we think, well, how did that subject come up? So when James talks about trials and temptations and, and the truth of God, you notice he ends with those two verses in uh, chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, and he ends that chapter by talking about how do you respond to widows and orphans? And then he says, and are you keeping yourself unspotted from the world, by the way? And so that seems to be kind of like just a thought thrown in, but it's not. Because now he's talking about in, uh, back in those days who were insignificant people. Widows were automatically poor. Uh, uh, orphans were poor. They were looked down upon. They were a different kind of people. They're insignificant. How do you relate to those people is what James is asking these Christians. And then we go into uh, chapter 2, and he talks about uh, uh, the class of people and how uh, we relate to that. Now, all of us are familiar with Martin Luther King Jr., I'm sure. But perhaps we're not as familiar with Mahatma Gandhi, who had a great and probably the greatest influence of any person upon Martin Luther King's life. Uh, there were some things in common that they had. Nonviolent protests. And both were assassinated. And as you may know, Gandhi was the leader of the Indian nationalist movement, which was trying to break loose of the British rule, and he is called the father of his country. Gandhi is to India what George Washington is to the United States. We look at uh, President Washington as the father of our country. India looks to Gandhi as the father of their country. It's interesting, when Gandhi wrote his autobiography, he said he was very touched and moved by the Holy Scriptures, the Bible. He loved the Bible. He read it over and over again. He especially loved the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And even there, he went a step further in his favorite portion of Scripture, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which you and I know as the Sermon on the Mount. And he was especially attracted to and loved the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when he was in South Africa, and it was during the time of apartheid, uh, he was practicing law in that country. And he became so overwhelmed with this person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his teachings, he decided to go to a Christian church. And he had one thing in his mind and heart, one question. How can you tell me the God of the Bible, the Lord Jesus, can forgive me my sins and give me eternal life? That was his question. What you and I would say is, what is the way of salvation? How can a person be saved? And then he had other questions underneath there of other doctrines, but that was the main focus uh, of what he went into the church for. When he entered the sanctuary, uh, there was an usher who uh, greeted him there, and he refused to allow Gandhi to enter uh, the sanctuary. And what he said was, there's no room for coffers in this church. 
Now, coffers is a very derogatory word you would use of people of color over in South Africa. And that's what the usher said to do. And then he said, get out of here or I will have my people throw you down the steps. It is reported by Gandhi himself. And of course, we know he was rejected for one reason only. He wasn't, didn't have white skin. And as a result, Gandhi never again, as far as we know, went to another church service. It was a uh, Christian missionary, East Stanley Jones, that met Mr. Gandhi in India. And he went up to him and he asked him this question. He said, Mr. Gandhi, he said, I've read a lot of your books. And I see in all the books you write, you always refer to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ so very often. Why do you then reject him and not become a Christian? And Gandhi replied, and I quote his words, he says, oh, I don't reject your Christ. I love your Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike your Christ. What an awful indictment. What an awful thing to be said about believers. So we visit a church service, could be 10 years, uh, up to 15 years after the crucifixion and resurrection. It's the early church. James is the earliest book written in the New Testament. And so we go into this church service, and here's what we read in verses 1 to 4, and you'll see it on the screen and in your Bibles as well. My brethren, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, St stand over there, sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now let's stop right there for a minute. We're going to talk this morning about the matter of discrimination. We're going to talk about a test put to us. How do I treat other people? And it can be as simple as being an usher and how I treat people when they come into the local assembly. First thing I want to share with you is this, and this seems to be uh, very true, and that is that partiality or showing respect of persons is very subtle. It's very subtle. Discrimination involves judging people on one basis alone, and that one basis is the external appearance and how I look at a person externally and relationship to their color of their skin or their culture, what class of society they are, or even what creed. Now, why do I bring that last one in? I didn't have this in my notes, but I, the story came to my memory this morning. And it was a group of soccer moms who were uh, at the soccer practice and waiting for the children to be done. And they were having a good time, like soccer moms do. They visited, they talked, they laughed, they shared life's experiences, etc. And uh, after a little bit, another mother came into the group, but she was different. She had uh, an Arab garb on, and uh, you knew right away by, by looking at her that she herself um, was a Muslim. And she ended up sitting by herself. 
And the soccer moms looked at her, and no one did anything. No one welcomed. No one said hello. They just kept on talking among themselves, having a good time, and even expressed a little bit of concern that there was a Muslim woman in the place. After a few minutes, another soccer mom walked in, and she immediately sat down next to the Muslim. And pretty soon you could see they were laughing and they were talking, getting to know each other, sharing stories about the children, whatever. And then it was time to leave. It was discovered that this one who came in and sat next to the Muslim was blind. And I thought to myself, isn't that what it is all about? Because we look at people and we need to be blind when it comes to the external appearance. Doesn't really matter what they look like in any one of those color, creed, culture, or class. Now, if you look at uh, chapter 2 and you look at verse 1 and then verse 9, you'll see a same compound word that is translated by the word partiality. Verse 1, show no partiality. Uh, verse 9, but if you show partiality. Notice he says it both times. What that word really means, it has the idea to receive by faith. By faith is the, the literal translation of it. And it has you base your judgment on a person based solely on how the face looks to you. And then you make the judgment. Now, one of the judgments you can make by looking at a person's face and outward appearance is you can look up to them. And so as you look up to them, uh, that would be the idea uh, that they find, you find them very attractive. On the other hand, you look down on them with the idea of ignoring them because they're not one of you. And so you look down with the idea of ignoring. But as you look at their face, sometimes, especially in a church setting, whether they're attractive or they're, whether they're unattractive externally, but they might have a lot of money in their pocket that can help the church or can possibly even help you. The idea is holding the face in both your hands and looking at that face and saying, you are so beautiful. You are so very handsome. And as a result of that, you deserve special treatment. Now, most of us are familiar with Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, um, I have a dream. Here's what he said, and most of us know these words. Some of you have them memorized. I have a dream, he said, that my little four children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Beautiful words. Mira and I went down Friday evening to South Cape Beach for the first time this year. Took a couple of submarines for to have dinner down there. It was a beautiful night, if you remember, Friday evening. And we were down there, and it was pretty crowded for an evening. And all of a sudden, as we're sitting there and we're talking, there's a little African-American boy about the age of my, our youngest grandson, looked four, maybe five years old. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me. So watching him, watching the interaction with him and his and mom, and just watching him laughing and 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 having fun and thinking of my own grandson. I I turned to Muriel. <laughs> I said, "How in the world? How in the world can a person 
reject another person created in the image of God because of the color of their skin. How does that happen? A little boy rejected by some probably. Just different color of skin. It's an awful thing. They say by the time you're in third grade, you learn discrimination. You're not born to be prejudiced people. No one's ever born a racist or knows anything about culture or class or creed. They learn it. And we go back in our years. I've got to go back a long time. But I can remember fat people, skinny people, blonde jokes, Nerd, stupid, Italian, Polish jokes, Irish jokes. It goes on and on. We all grew up with it. It's an unfair world. And every one of those characteristics are based upon an external appearance of a person. I've... uh, studied the Bible a long time. And when I studied the Gospels, I have never once seen Jesus make a judgment based on externalities alone. Never. You will never find a passage where Jesus made a judgment based on that person's externality. He was always looking to reach the heart. Even his enemies said about him, you are not swayed by appearances. So true. So here's this nearsighted usher who wastes no time as he greets two worshipers. Now this isn't based on race, this is now based on culture or class. And the one comes in and mighty finely dressed. Probably has a Hickey Freeman suit. Rolex, maybe, watch. And right next to him comes in this poor man. My ESV says shabbily dressed. Probably didn't smell too good. So he's dirty. And immediately you can get inside this usher's head. Remember back in chapter 1, what we ended last week, where James warns us three times in chapter 1. If any man thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he's not talking there about how you talk against other people or slander people or lie to people. He's talking about how you talk to yourself. We talk to ourselves all the time, all day long. We answer ourselves. We argue with ourselves. And if we're not careful, we deceive ourselves. So here's this usher. What am I going to do with this very fine-looking gentleman? Well, he's got a chair for him. But this poor guy, you know, he, he, he fits better over there. He's probably used to sitting on the dirt floor. Let me just look at him. And so he deceives himself. 
Now he's made a judge. He's a believer, by the way. My brother, and James says. He's writing to brothers. And so he's made a judgment. Poor guy's no doubt looking for a handout. Why else would a poor guy come to church? He's used to sitting on the dirt floor. Anything for this guy goes. I said they learned it. We learned discrimination from others. Where did he learn this as a Christian? I think he learned it from his spiritual leaders, the Pharisees. Remember when Jesus said to them in Matthew 23, 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you bunch of hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. I actually thought of wearing my clergyman's robe, my academic robe, and put it on just to show you how holy I can look. And then I wanted to just lift my hands up like the rabbi would do, the Pharisee. What did they, well, they did it on the street corner. What street corner? The one where most people passed by. And they always prayed out loud to impress other people. Can you hear their prayer? Jesus says, woe to you, you devour Widows' houses. We need more tax money. Why do we need tax money for the temple? Because the Pharisees were some of the richest people in Israel. Where do you think they got their money? Can you hear the prayer? After they take this house away from the widow, oh God, we thank you for her submissive spirit. She didn't resist us. And now, oh God, please, oh God, bless this homeless woman that we have caused her homelessness by taking her house. Pretty stern words, I say, from Jesus. By the way, there's about seven of those woes in Matthew 23. Let me just point one other thing out to you in verse 1, and I'll move on. My brethren, show no partiality as you hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he adds, the Lord of glory. Why did he say the Lord of glory? He, he's shown the contrast here. One of the things that makes him so glorious is what? He shows no favoritism. He has no partiality. What are you like, Jesus? What are you really like? Oh, I know what others said about you. I know what your enemies said about you. Tell me, Jesus, what are you literally like? And the answer comes in one verse of Scripture. As far as I know, nowhere else in the Bible does Jesus tell you and me what he is like. Then we come to Matthew 11. For I am meek and lowly in heart. You wonder what Jesus is like? He's got the towel in one hand and the pail of water in the other. He's a servant. He's a servant of others. He's meek. He's lowly in heart. A lot of things I love about our pastor. He's smart, hard worker, good communicator. But I know a lot of people like that. 
It's a spirit of humility that's so beautiful. That's what draws me to him and Katie. It's probably the most attractive attribute a person can have because arrogance, pride, a bunch of self just repels us, but that spirit of humility draws us. We often say the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So here's this Lord of glory, creator of heaven and earth, creator of every human being, and he comes down to this earth to an old rugged cross in order that he might die for the haves and the have-nots and the free and the prisoner, the poor and the rich. For whosoever shall call upon the name shall be saved. Partiality is a perversion of the grace of God. Partiality is subtle. Notice, secondly, partiality is sinful. Let me move through this very quickly. Verses 4 through 11. Notice it's first inconsistent with the character of God. Why do we say it's sinful? Because it's inconsistent with the character of God. Have you, verse 4, not then made distinctions among yourselves? Have you not become judges with evil thoughts? Strong language he's using here. He says to the usher, your partiality reveals your ignorance because what have you done? You now become the judge. And in becoming the judge, what have you done? You've put yourself above God Almighty. you put yourself in the place of God. What did you know about that rich man? What did you know about that poor man? What, if anything, did you know of their heart or their mind or what they thought or what their relationship to Christ was? You didn't know anything. But based on externality, you made a judgment. And it's inconsistent with the character of God. What's the answer to that? Because you've been there and I've been there. We've all done it. Sometime along the way, we've all done it. I think the only answer is look at people through the eyes of Jesus, right? So if that person is a believer, we love that person because Christ lives in him. And if that person is not born again, we love him because why? Christ died for him. Either way, love is the answer. You know, St. Augustine wasn't too far wrong when he said, love God and do whatever you want. Now that can sure be taken out of context. If you love God... You really love him. You'll love people. And you'll use things. But if you don't love God, you'll use people in order to get things. Second thing, it's inconsistent with the chosen of God. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? Heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Are not the rich people, he goes on uh, down to say, are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they, verse 7, not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? That's not true of every rich person. It's not true of every poor person. But he's saying, generally speaking, who's responsible for bringing you into court and persecuting you? It's the rich who the haves. Who do you not have a problem with? The have-nots. 
And now you've taken the very chosen of God. Every Jew reading this, and there were Jewish people to whom he wrote, knew exactly what he meant when he said the chosen of God. That's me. That's my nation. Israel are the chosen people of God. They've been that way for 4,000 years. Every Jew would see he's called, chosen by God on his grace alone. 2,000 years, you're the chosen of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, according as he has chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of sons. You're going to take the chosen of God? who has all the inheritance of God for all eternity, and you're going to put him on a dirt floor simply because he looks poor? What kind of person are you, Mr. Usher? You violated the character of God. You violated the chosen of God. You violated the commands of God, verses 8 through 11. If you really fulfill the royal law, Verse 8, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, and you are, you are committing sin or are convicted. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of all. The usher was self-deceived. Just like some of us can be self-deceived. Oh, I don't do, I don't break that law. I'm not an adulterer, I'm not a murderer. Well, I've broken this law. If you break one, you're guilty of the whole ten. If you're hanging from a cliff and thousand feet below you, and there's ten links on the chain, and all ten links break, what happens to you? You go to your death. What if one link breaks? You still go to your death. If you've got a plate glass window and someone throws ten rocks through it, you've got to replace it. If someone throws one rock through it, you've got to replace it. That's what he's saying. You're guilty of the whole law. I am a guilty sinner. I am everything he said I am and more and worse. What you're doing is inconsistent with the commands of God. You can be poor in this life and wealthy in the next. You can be rich in this life and poor in hell for eternity. The next one's a little bit better. You can be rich in this life and rich in eternity. Nothing wrong with being rich in this life if you got it the right way. You're using it for his glory. Or you can be poor in this life and poor in the next. I'll say this. I've never had a poor person in all my life that ever rejected a piece of gospel literature that I have offered them to tell them about how to know Christ as Savior. I've never had one all around the world, not one. But I can tell you opposite stories of those who I insulted that think that they would need a savior. I don't need that. Partiality is subtle, it's sinful, it brings the sentence of God. It just gets worse, doesn't it? 
Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. These are strong words, aren't they? What does James mean? Judgment is without mercy. What's that like? I don't even want to go there. He doesn't even tell us, so I'm not going to try. What I do know is this. I don't want God's justice. Or I'll go to hell forever, for all eternity. I plead like the public Gideon, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I need a Savior. He's not saying you earn God's mercy, by the way, if you show mercy to some unfortunate person. If it's earned, it's not mercy. Mercy is God withholds from us what I deserve. Grace, he gives to me what I don't deserve. I need mercy and grace, so do you. Mercy and justice both come from God. It's the heart of the sinner that determines the treatment that he gets. Now, let me move quickly and we'll try to close this out. Verses 15 to 16. It's the subject of partiality is still before us. Because I want you to catch the connection here. At the end of chapter 1, he's talking about unfortunate, insignificant people, widows, orphans. Now he comes to this, and it's a class of person, rich person, poor person. Now notice in chapter 2, verse 15. And if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, now he's talking about people who are just poor, they don't have clothes, basic necessities. He lacks in daily food. And you say, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things they needed for the body. What good is that? So you can see how the thread is woven here with insignificant people and how we respond to them. And he's saying here that if I'm impartial, if I'm showing partiality, it brings the sentence of God to it. But now he's going to also show us in verses 15 to 16. This, this, this thought is still before us. And he's going to show us that lastly, partiality reveals a lack of scriptural faith. These people claim to have faith. The question is, did they have scriptural faith? That's the question. Are you walking by faith? Is your faith a faith based in scripture? You say, well, what does that look like? I think the heart of the matter lies the question of the relationship between faith and works. We're getting at the core of the issue. What kind of faith really is the faith that saves a person's soul for all eternity? Three kinds of faith we'll close with. And only one of them is true saving faith, scriptural faith, biblical faith. Only one. So we want to make sure as I examine, am I walking by faith? Have I entered the life of faith? I want to be sure it's based on the Holy Word of God. Because A, there is a dead faith. What good is, verse 14, is it my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Now let me just make a summary statement here so I, I don't want to confuse you. James is going to tell us several times in verses 14 to 26 that a man is saved by works. Paul the apostle is quick to say a man is saved by faith alone. Do they contradict each other? No, they don't. By the way, Martin Luther, when he read the book of James after he was converted and came to Romans 1, 16, 17, therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, the just shall live by faith. When he came to the book of James, he tore it out of the Bible. 
because he didn't understand it at that time. That it was one coin with two sides. And we've got to understand that or we'll be confused. So James tells us there is a faith that is not biblical faith. It may sound like faith. It may look at first like faith. But it's dead, dead, dead. Verse 14, look at the question. What good is it? Verse 17, it is dead. Verse 20, it is useless. Verse 26, it is dead. Without the works, the first kind of faith is a dead faith. So he asked the question, and literally from the Greek, here's how it's rendered. Can that kind of faith save that man? And the conclusion is faith, if it has no works, verse 17, is dead, being by itself. Now in verses 18 and 19, he presents another kind of faith. Not dead faith, but weirdly enough, demonic faith. Demonic faith goes a step further. Because it includes not only the intellectual, I believe. Anyone can say that. Now he's going from the intellectual and also to the emotional ascent. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Is that what you believe? You're in good standing there. You know what that you know what every Jew knew there when they heard that? That's the great Shema. Every synagogue service opening, whether it's in Boston, New York, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, Rio de Janeiro, Moscow, every service opens with the great Shema. Deuteronomy 6:4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. You believe there's one God, you believe in monotheism. He says, that's great. He says the demons also believe that. Demons believe in the great Shema. Then he adds this, and, verse 19, they shudder. So what's included in demonic faith? The belief that God is one and the belief of so emotional that they are so fearful and shudder. You know why they shudder? Because they can't be redeemed. I pray if you're here today and you're not sure if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven. I pray that you shudder. I pray that in your heart and in your chair, you are shuddering. You ought to. But then I pray that the love of God will overwhelm you in his grace to show you that he loves you. He doesn't want you to go to hell. And if you invite Christ as your savior, trust him, you'll be born again. Not dead faith, not demonic faith, but dynamic faith, verses 20 to 26. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son on the altar? Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture, verse 23, was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messenger and sent them out another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Simply stated, dynamic faith has life, power, and a belief that results in a life change. It involves the whole person, his intellect, his emotions, his will. And then he gives us two illustrations from the Old Testament, done it. 
Abraham and Rahab. Two opposite people, man, woman. Israelite, Gentile. Man of faith, godly man, a prostitute. Abraham called the friend of God. She was with the enemies of God. Nothing in common except their dynamic faith. Now, look at this chart, and maybe this will help us understand a little bit, and we're going to be finished, to make sure we understand that James and Paul do not contradict each other. They complement each other. So if we just take what Paul's message is on the left and compare it with James' message, you see that Paul's message is you're justified by faith. James says you're justified by works. How do you bring those two together? James, uh, Paul is talking about the root of salvation, what's right down at the heart, what I call that point action of faith when you're born again, while James talks about the fruit of salvation. Perspective, Paul says God sees the inside, man sees the outside. He's talking about justification. James talking more about sanctification, the life. Why does he use the verse from Genesis 15, 6 here in James and says, Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. And then go, you wait 25 years and then he offers up Isaac, which James uses. If two people come up here after the service and both of you look me eyeball to eyeball and you said, I believe in Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, the best way I know how I trust him as my Savior, I can look at them and say, based upon your confession and if what you say is genuine from your heart, then you, will be, you have been born again. The only problem is what? I can't see the heart. Abraham believed God. No one could see his heart except who? God alone. But 25 years later, he did something that everyone could hear about and see. When God gave him a test, the hardest test of his life, offer your son, your only son, Isaac, and he went up there to Mount Moriah. Because James is talking about how a man is justified before other men. While Paul is talking about how a man is justified in the sight of God. And he's saying, if you're saying I am justified because I put, I believe the gospel, I went forward at a meeting, I raised my hand, I prayed a prayer, and that's what I'm justified. James is saying, no, 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 no. Go back to that, but now look at your life since then. Not perfect, but if any man be in Christ, he's what? A new creation. Old things are passing away, all things are becoming new. Martin Luther came to know this truth, the more he studied and later in his life, he said, works are not to be taken into consideration when the question respects justification, but true faith will no more fail to produce them than the sun can cease to give light. Discrimination. Partiality. How we treat others. How we treat insignificant people. What's your score? To pass the test? Got some areas that need them worked on. What are you doing with the widows? I know it's getting late. 35 years ago, I had a widow who was a very wealthy widow. She and her husband were members of Congressional Country Club in Bethesda, Maryland, Potomac, Maryland, when I was working at a college and seminary in Washington. And she was one of our major donors. She probably did more to advance the advancement of women in golf 
at Congressional Country Club than all the other people put together, where women now had an equal status in the country club. That's another story, we won't go there. But she became a widow. I couldn't buy her anything, what could I buy her? So finally at dinner one night, I remember Muriel and I were with her. She had invited us over to the club for dinner. I said, Margaret, let me just be honest with you. I said, I know you are a woman of means. I said, I want to, we want to do something. What can we do for you? Here's one I've never forgotten. I've had others attest to this since then, but I never heard this before, never knew it. She said, Harry, my husband and I, all of our life, we socialized with couples. She says, we went to dinner, we played golf, we did this, that. We just loved the fellowship of the other couples. She says, you know what happened? When I became a widow, I was relegated to the Widows and Divorcees Club. And she looked at me. She said, I miss men. I miss the fellowship of men. And I've never forgotten that. I've had many tell me that since then. Do you invite widows? Look back over six months. Who have you had for dinner? Who have you had in your home? Who have you taken out? Who have you socialized? You have any heart for an orphan? Here in Africa, in Tanzania, in Moscow? Do you do anything with orphans? Well, you do a lot with prisoners. You saw that this morning, your generosity. What about the homeless, the immigrants? James says, visit the widow. That word visit doesn't mean you go and you have a cup of tea and then you pray and leave. It's the same word Jesus used in Matthew 25 when he said, I was in prison and what? You visited me. It means you, put, you poured your life into me is what it means. Now, having said all that, let me leave you an encouraging word. Because on your test for today's topic, OBC, you get a gold star at the top, okay? Now, I don't even know who you are, but I'm using the plural pronoun you, collective, you people, but I don't know who those individuals are. Mira and I had a person in church uh, that had visited OBC. We had him in our house. And uh, as the story was told to us, they had visited different churches on the Cape, stayed at one a little bit, but then made OBC uh, the church home. So I asked the obvious question. What was it that attracted you to this church? What, what made the difference? Because the other churches, good churches, Bible, preaching, etc. And she looked at me, I bought all by, she says, look at me. And I looked at her. She says, I look different than most people at OBC, don't I? I said, that's for sure. She said, do you hear me talking? I said, sure I do. She said, do you notice I talk differently than other people at OBC? I said, yeah, you sure do. She hears the difference. I know I look different. I know I talk different. But no one at OBC ever treated me different. I thought, gold star, OBC. 
Good for you, whoever you are, maybe all of you, gold star. Let's bow in prayer. So if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ alone, you have been justified by faith when you come to faith in Christ. Now you look and say, is, does my life demonstrate by my outward works, especially as how I treat insignificant people that show forth the love of Christ? That's the question. If you're not sure you've ever been born again, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'd love to know about your decision. I'd love to pray for you, but I won't embarrass you. If you'd be willing to say, Harry, I'm not sure I've ever passed from death unto life. I'm not sure I've been born again. I'd invite you now. The best way you know how put your faith in Christ, where the righteousness of Christ can be imputed to your account, like when Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. Just pray a prayer of something like this. Lord Jesus, the best way I know how, I put my faith in you and you alone as my personal Savior. Forgive me my sins and give me the gift of eternal life. I'd love to pray for you. If you wouldn't mind, don't bother anyone in your right, left, in front, or in back. Just slip your hand and then just put it down. And just say, yes, I prayed that prayer and I meant it. Just slip it up and then put a thank you. And then just put it right back down. I missed somebody at the earlier service. I'm sorry about that, but I didn't see their hand, but was told afterwards. Anybody else at all? Holy Father, thank you for your great love for us and help us to show as instruments of yours that love of Christ to others, especially as we relate to others, especially even those who society might call insignificant. In Jesus' name, amen.